life, Cassie and I have the joy of leading this little Jesus community. And I promise, like, I can do normal adult things most of the time. Uh, but it's close to Thanksgiving, vacation's on my mind. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, welcome, uh, if we haven't met, again, Alex, uh, crazy, uh, Advent starts next week. So, uh, Corbin will be kicking us off for the Advent season as we work our way towards Christmas and, um, the return of our King. And so, uh, we're looking forward to just these reflections on what it means for us to be a Christmas people, for us to be people eagerly longing to see our King. So, Corbin will kick us off with a reflection on peace. But today, I am one part finishing and one part continuing a series started back on August 20th called Come Holy Spirit. Uh, fun fact, we've been in this series longer than Taylor Swift has been dating Travis Kelsey. So we've been doing it for a while. The world has changed since we started working our way through this series. As we've been working through it, our desire has been to draw our attention back to the third member of the Trinity we call Holy Spirit and to reclaim our heritage as people of the Spirit. We want to be a people of radical openness to God who have just ordinary encounters with the living God in our midst. We want to be people who know God, not just in information and data. We want to know God in our gut, and we want to do the Jesus stuff. So our prayer has been, come Holy Spirit. And this is less about the Spirit relocating and more about the state of our attention. When we pray, come Holy Spirit, it's a beckoning for us to draw our attention to God's presence in our midst. So this is the last installment in 2023, but in 2024, we'll come back with Come Holy Spirit Part 2. And in that Part 2, we will consider what it means to receive the Spirit and how we interact with the gifts like, hold on to your seatbelts, tongues, prophecy, deliverance, and healing. Now, I hope that doesn't frighten you too much. Like, I, I don't have snakes planned at all. Um, we have been working for about four months to locate our relationship with the Spirit in the quiet and with simple friendship. So just because it turns 2024, we're not going to just engage in the loud and chaotic. So if you have fears, please just maybe work on turning those into curiosity. We're not veering into the loud or chaotic just because it becomes 2024. Our hope is that as followers of Jesus, we can know the full extent of what the Spirit has to offer. So today I'm concluding our survey of the Spirit's role in the biblical text with the Spirit's role in new creation, which means we're considering the future or a theological category called eschatology. Now, this subject in particular has a whole host of wacky stuff with it, so I prepared a whole chart uh, for you to understand what's going on in the world. That's a joke. I don't have any charts. I'm not making any predictions. If you know, you know. Um, this subject has a whole host of craziness related to it, and we should rightly reconsider or question what we've thought about God's planned future. For many of us in this room, we've gone through 
a season of wrestling or questioning, often labeled deconstruction. Many of us have walked through that season of questioning the tenets of Christianity to evaluate its value in our life. And I am actually in favor of this process. Deconstruction done in good faith and with healthy curiosity can help someone discover a more robust and healthy faith. And so today we will ask some questions of God's plan for the future. We'll consider the trajectory of the Christian story. And as we consider that story, I also think we would be well served by putting the same deconstruction lens on secularism story. Disconnected from the boundaries of religion generally and Christianity specifically, what is the trajectory of our world? If we gave up on faith today, what would be our hope for the future? My suggestion would be that the story of secularism is that we can build a better world without God. It's a story that suggests the world is slowly but progressively marching towards a utopia built by our own two hands and in our image. That if we continue this pursuit of utopia that we imagine for ourselves, we will eventually build it. And this is the promise of politicians, social critics, activists, advertisers, and commentators that we can one day land at the utopia we imagine for ourselves. Candidates on the left and on the right offer their own spin, but it's roughly the same thing. If you put your hope in me with more money, more education, and more social programs, we can arrive at a utopia of equality. If you put your hope in me with more money, more military, more borders, and more police, we can arrive at a utopia of safety. It's the same story, just with different talking points, but they all require the same sacrament, your trust and your money. Michael Schimmer, a prominent humanist and skeptic, wrote a work called Protopian Politics and the Future of Nationalism. I will not suggest going to read it. It is a dense read. But it had some interesting points as I worked through what is the secular hope. In it, Shimmer attempts to name a future for humanity absent of the traditional religious confines. He writes this, I am assuming that we are not going to genetically engineer out of our nature greed, avarice, competitive, competitiveness, aggression, and violence, because these characteristics are part and parcel of who we are as a species. Instead, what I foresee in the future of civilization here on Earth, that we have learned to design our political, economic, and social systems to bring out the best of our natures while holding back the worst I think it was Dallas Willard once said, we're always searching for a political structure that makes it so that we don't have to be on our best behavior. Shimmer goes on to imagine an advanced civilization that is spread through the stars, transformed planets, and become the stuff of science fiction. And he sums up his vision with this. Civilizations this advance would have so much knowledge and so much power as to be essentially omniscient and omnipotent, indistinguishable from God. 
Michael Schimmer says it himself. It's not that the secular vision doesn't have a God. It's that I am the God. It's the kingdom without the king. It's everything we want from the Christian vision absent Christ. And over the last few days, I have been reading a lot of Shimmer's work. And let me be very clear. He is blisteringly, excuse me, blisteringly brilliant. A prophet, if you will, to the people who have left God. But the place he and I disagree on is humanity's need for help. Schemmer believes we can, given enough time and scientific discovery, fix ourselves. And I think we need outside assistance. The last century alone has proven that we cannot be trusted with power. We've been working toward our utopia, but we've just reinvented hell on earth. Two world wars, a camp called Auschwitz, dozens of ethnic genocides, Child pornography, apartheid, nuclear holocaust, the warming planet is all the product of human ingenuity. The secular story continues to fall short because it cannot seem to deal with the evil of the human heart. Shimmer Hicks himself acknowledges there is corruption in our heart that we cannot seem to overcome without some sort of intervention. His answer is a political structure. My preferred answer is the creator. I find the story of Christianity so compelling because it offers us a story and a framework that holds what seem to be two contradictory ideas at the same time, that humans are capable of some of the greatest good possible. Take a walk through the Nelson Atkins and just see the capacity of the human work and then walk outside and see the brokenness on our very streets. We are simultaneously capable of the greatest good and the most unimaginable evil. But we desperately need someone to intervene. Someone who can renovate our hearts and show us a better way. And this is the story of Christianity. That the God who made our world is working to remake our world. And that is the story that we are going to explore today. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, head with me to Revelation 21. And I want to start with some guidance as we read this confusing book, and then I'll work line by line through Revelation 21. The single most common mistake people make when talking about this book is calling it Revelations. Uh, it's singular, not plural. It's one revelation. Uh, you will sound goofy if you say Revelations in talking to a friend. I am here just doing the Lord's work, people. This is the most important thing you need to take away from today. It is revelation, singular. I'm joking, but I do think it's telling that a book that has been so misunderstood also has a name problem. So let's do a quick primer on this book. First, the revelation was written by someone named John, uh, most, likely, most likely the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, the other option is just some other guy named John. Like, the people, scholars are like, it's either John the apostle or someone else named John. Uh, second, our author is writing to Christians facing religious persecution under Nero. 
Because of this intense persecution, John writes an encoded letter drawing on the imagery of the Old Testament. He uses symbolism that the Christians at the time would have understood almost instantly. John's technique is similar to the abolitionist movement of the 19th century that used encoded language like Underground Railroad to describe a network of safe houses and secret routes. It was encoded language. There wasn't actually a subterranean locomotive, if you didn't know. Uh, it was a network of safe houses and routes. Similarly, in a time of intense persecution and violence, John is encoding his text so that if it is intercepted, he won't be found out. He uses language like dragons, beasts, monsters, and Babylon to offer a veiled critique of the Roman government and its demand for loyalty. What's that trend about men thinking about the Roman Empire? Uh, I think John fits that. This is all about the Roman Empire. John's encouragement to the persecuted and suffering church is that history has a way of repeating itself. Empires like Rome will reap what they sow, like Egypt, like Assyria, and like Babylon, all examples of God humbling unjust nations and empires. Every empire will fall eventually. But John's revelation is also apocalyptic. And by apocalyptic, I don't mean zombies and leather. In biblical literature, apocalypse refers to a genre of writing that unveils history from God's perspective. A great apocalyptic film is The Wizard of Oz. And The Wizard of Oz is apocalyptic not because Dorothy and Toto are fighting zombies in a nuclear wasteland. It's apocalyptic because there is this moment in which reality is unveiled. There was never a great and powerful wizard. There was just a clever man behind a curtain. Similarly, apocalyptic literature in the scriptures is all about revealing what's really going on underneath. And the apocalyptic nature of Revelation is that it peels back the curtain and tells these persecuted Christians that they have been caught in the middle of a cosmic battle between heaven and hell. And John lays his argument out in four parts. First, he gives instructions to seven churches who are experiencing both apathy and desertion. He's encouraging them to stay the course. Second, he has this crazy vision where he is taken to the throne room of God. There it is revealed that God has begun to push back the darkness. He's begun to overthrow every human nation and empire through the power of the crucified Christ. Then in the third section, chapters 6 through 16, John uses a lot of wild imagery and veiled critique of Rome. So I'm going to just settle into this one just for a second. Uh, John writes of Rome and Nero as being animated by the powers of darkness. And God will do what he did to Pharaoh and harshly judge their injustice and violence. So let me quickly explain chapter 13, because as soon as I said revelation earlier, you're like, Mark of the Beast. What are we talking about? So in chapter 13, uh, two beasts are described. The first one represents Rome's military prowess, and the second represents Rome's economic propaganda. 
Both beasts of military and economic power demand the worship and absolute loyalty of all of its followers. John says that the beasts force all people to mark on their forehead and hand, indicating their ultimate allegiance to the beast. John's message is that rebellious nations claim things for themselves that only God deserves. Now, the 666 point makes this even clearer. Um, You didn't know you were going here today, but here we are. If you spell out Nero, Caesar, and Beast in Hebrew, uh, it corresponds with numbers, it works out to 666. So the mark of the beast is not a microchip in your forehead or hand. It's not a tattoo. It's actually far more insidious than that. It's far more subtle than that. It is giving loyalty and allegiance that rightfully belong to God, to a nation, or a leader. It's far more insidious than going to a tattoo parlor and getting 666 on your forehead. It is a posture of the heart. The Bible Project has an excellent video on Revelation, and it's especially helpful in this section. Um, It's a two-parter, so it's like 30 minutes, well worth your time, um, because this is a difficult work to get through. Um, But by reading and understanding the historical context, it actually makes a lot more sense. And this brings us to John's final section, in which he gives a vision for the reign of God. It is God's promise that Jesus will return to rid the world of evil. The revelation of John does not include, or excuse me, the revelation of John does include this incredible depiction of the future, but it isn't a timeline nor a codex for our guessing. It's a promise meant to infuse hope into weary believers that God will make all things new. When you read Revelation, it's not meant to fire all these ideas these predictions and these book sales, the revelation of John is this beautiful kaleidoscope of all of the biblical promises coming together to create a cohesive picture of what God plans for his creation. And so with that understanding, I want to work our way through our teaching text, unpacking what John envisions to be the Christian hope. So let's pick up in chapter 20, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. John is suggesting that God is taking what was good and right, namely creation itself, and he is renewing it, that it might be what it was always meant to be. John is riffing on a prophecy of Isaiah's. Let's see if this sounds familiar. For behold, I create new heavens, and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. John does not think that creation itself will be destroyed. Rather, it will be renovated. And this is an important distinction. The distinction between creation being destroyed versus being renewed is the difference between your childhood home being torn down and something else built on top of it, or someone refurbishing it. For someone to renovate it leaves the foundation, the bones, and much of its character intact. A renovated home is strangely familiar, 
likely better than it was before. And God's plan is not to scrap all of creation and start again, but like our salvation, God's plan is to renovate and renew what has been broken. And this is an important distinction because many of us carry an image of heaven informed more by Looney Tunes than by the biblical text. We carry these cartoonish pictures of expansive clouds, gold gates, harps, and white robes. If we're honest, there's this sense of dread when we think of heaven because I can only sing Good, Good Father for so long before I get bored. Like, these are the ideas in which that have shaped the Christian imagination, that it's all clouds and songs. But my point is, if God is renovating the earth and not destroying it, and heaven is descending and being reunited with planet earth, then there will be a shocking amount of continuity between the world we know and the world to come. If you look back at the first chapter of Genesis, with each day of creation, what does God declare? It is good. Forests, mountains, molecular biology, physics, gravity, vegetables, pine trees, sunrises, mammals, birds, fish, and humans all declared very good. So when we imagine God's future, we should picture it here on planet Earth. After this service, you might find yourself at lunch with another member of this community, and it's very likely in God's proclaimed future, you could be doing something very similar, enjoying a meal because it is good, and God is the author of every good gift. The future will remain shockingly continuous with the one we experience now. I think one of the greatest delights will be seeing how our God repurposes and recycles the harm we've done into something new. Landfills turned into teeming gardens. Deforested lands turned into public parks and community spaces. Parking lots reclaimed and abandoned buildings repurposed. The world renovated and reunited with heaven. The whole ecosystem of life functioning as it was always supposed to. Except for the sea. Did you catch that little bit at the end of verse 1? And the sea was no more. Best I can tell, I do think there will be water in the new creation. God doesn't have a vendetta against the Pacific Ocean. Um, John is once more speaking in metaphors. For many ancient civilizations, Judaism and ancient Christianity included, the sea stands as this metaphor for chaos and evil lurking under the surface of life. The sea is this mysterious and unpredictable place, a place full of unknown dangers. Think of the Odyssey, this ancient Greek story. Much of its perils and dangers relate what? To sailing on a sea. For the ancients, the sea represented this place where evil lurks under the surface and monsters emerge from. So to say there will be no more sea is to say there will be no more evil, no more danger, no more chaos, and no more places for monsters to hide. And throughout the library of scripture, there is this recurring figure we call the evil one. In the garden, this figure appeared as a serpent, tempting the first humans 
to resist the instructions of God and to choose for themselves what is good and what is evil. And this choice plunges the whole world into chaos, making it dangerous, unpredictable, and dark, very much like the sea. And in this chaos, people, relationships, and institutions are corrupted and co-opted by that serpent in a way that hell reigns on earth. So to say that the new creation will be without the sea is to say that the, ev- the influence of the evil one will be broken. N.T. Wright summarizes and sums up this thought beautifully. That is what it means by there being no more sea. Throughout this book, as in much of the Bible, the sea is the dark force of chaos that threatens God's plans and God's people. It is the element from which the first monster emerged. But in the new creation, there will be no more sea, no more chaos, no place from which monsters might again emerge. John continues in verses 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The key word in this section is dwell. The dwelling place of God is with man. John uses this term intentionally to conjure up the idea of God dwelling with his people in a tent, a temple, and in a person. So let's review those ideas briefly. Tent, temple, person. In Exodus 25, Moses is instructed by God to set up a tent so that he can dwell with the people of God. This tent will be called the tabernacle. The God of the universe plans to accompany the Israelites as they wander through the wilderness. He plans to camp with them. But it's more like glamping because it is a very, very nice tent. The Spirit ends up resting on two craftsmen, enhancing their knowledge, skills, and abilities to create a tent that mimics the garden. The very details of the tabernacle were like intricate Easter eggs or callbacks to the Garden of Eden the place where God first dwelled with humanity. So God's presence rests in this temple with the Israelites that they might know him and be a people marked by his presence. Later in Leviticus 26, God speaks through Moses to the Israelites saying this, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. For centuries, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelled. The glory of God in a tent. Eventually, under the leadership of Solomon, the tabernacle was replaced with the temple. One of the most impressive structures in the ancient world. And like its predecessor, the temple was a place where God dwelt in glory. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, that first temple was destroyed by Babylon in the 6th century BC, and by the 1st century, 
A second temple had been built by Herod the Great. And this is the temple that becomes the setting for much of the New Testament. And the Apostle John picks up on this theme of glory dwelling in a tent, in a temple, when he writes this in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, quick note on this. The Word of God mentioned by John is not the Bible. The Word of God is Jesus. In verse 2, he is used, not it. So when someone asks what the Word of God is, the Sunday school answer, which is correct, is Jesus. Thank you. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Based on our whirlwind journey of the Old Testament, your synapses should be firing. John has picked up the Israelite story, claiming that Jesus has become the glory of God who is dwelling with us in the wilderness. God has become flesh, and he has taken up residence among us. As Eugene Peterson puts it, God moved into the neighborhood. God dwelling in a person. This incredible vision in Revelation 21 is only made possible by the work of the crucified Christ. Through Jesus, we have been liberated from our captivity, brought back into the presence of our Father. In Jesus' resurrection and conquering of death, we will all experience resurrection and the conquering of death. For Easter morning is not a one-time occurrence. It is a preview of our own resurrection. John's revelation is about a day in which life conquers death completely and fully. And we know God as we were always meant to know him. He imagines a day in which we will know the face of God, where we will walk with him in the cool of day. We will recognize his laughter and we will know his voice. He will be our God and we will be his people. And together it will be our great joy to explore his good creation. We will know life as God meant it to be. John continues in verse 4. He will wipe every, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Bible does not offer a clear or concise answer for why we suffer, but it does tell us what God is doing to bring suffering to an end, that in his presence we are made whole, the brokenness and regret of our previous life healed. Leanne Payne writes that in Genesis 3, in the fall, the greatest loss was our access to the presence of God, that we've been separated from the one our hearts long for, she writes this, separation from the presence of God is quite literally what the fall is. As a result of the fall, mankind slipped from God consciousness into the hell of self and self-consciousness. When the dwelling place of God is with humanity, the ways of our former life will be forgotten. We will unlearn the ways of war, pettiness, and self-indulgence. We will forget how to grieve, mourn, and cry. We will abandon 
egotistical ambitions and selfish desires, death will be swallowed up with new life. Verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. One commentator suggested that we should imagine all of creation as a container for God's love, a place for him to direct his love. And at the end of history, when his will is accomplished, it will be God's love filling everything, every square inch of reality buzzing with the energy of God's love. All things made new, a love that conquers death. This is John's depiction of our trajectory. This is the Christian story. In John 4, 1, 4, excuse me, we're told that there's a foretaste of this promised future available now. He writes, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We broken people marred by the choice to go our own way have become the tent in which the spirit dwells. Jesus, the bridge between heaven and earth, God incarnate, God very God declares that we are now little tabernacles. Dwelling places for the Holy Spirit to reside. The glory of God no longer resides in a tent or a temple, but in the apprentices of Jesus. And he is revealing the goodness of his future through our love. To the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul asks this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The Apostle Paul will then go on to call the Spirit a guarantee of things to come. That we are new create creatures, a signpost of the new creation to come. There are a few ways to summarize the entire message of the biblical text, but quickly, one of my favorites is that the whole book, from beginning to end, is about God's pursuit to make his home with us. That the entire scripture, story after story, is about God's invitation to make our home in him and our continual rejection of that offer. Constant invitation to make his home with us. This is what Dallas Willard calls the golden thread of scripture. And once you see it, you will find it everywhere. Through the ministry of Christ and his sending of the Spirit, God is with us at all times. We bear witness to the goodness of God's promised future. Everywhere we go, the future of reality is pulled into the present moment because we have the Spirit who will recreate all the world in us. We have become the dwelling place of God. John Wesley, an 18th century pastor and minister who traveled the world and saw God do a lot of things. Healing, exor exor exorcisms, excuse me, the unexplainable, but towards the end of the, his life, he said this, the best of all 
is God is with us. Worship team, you can join me, but don't play it. Best of all, God is with us. Let's get into a few of the implications of this. First of all, that God is with you at all times, in your body at a subatomic level. This isn't some vague concept about a divine spark. This is the orthodox promise that the God of the cosmos is with you at all times. He's available to guide, direct, talk with, energize, empower, counsel, heal, and comfort. He can be known. He can be experienced. He can be talked to. He is with you. The question is, are you with him? We find ourselves a distracted, self-absorbed, absent-minded, careless, and confused bunch, aren't we? It's not that we don't care about the spirit, about depth, or about discipleship to Jesus. We just spend most of our life in the state of autopilot, unaware that we've been invited to dwell with God. How many of your decisions, day in and day out, just, just live out? You wake up one moment, you realize you've driven 30 minutes across town, not even knowing what you've been doing. We live so much of our life on autopilot. Learning to be with God is not a science. It's not this formula that I can lay out. I wish I could. I wish I could give you just step one, two, three, four, and God will start speaking in a burning bush. But it's an art form that we must all practice and an awareness we must cultivate. Here's the practical stuff. There is no, simply no substitute for time with God. Like, honestly, I, I take a little pride in um, maybe pulling a random verse and being like, huh, you've never heard it talked about this way before. Or, like, bringing something with nuance and thoughtfulness. And I, I, I really tried to give it a shot. Like, how can I, like, recast quiet time for people? And the reason quiet time has stuck around is because there is no substitute for it. There's no substitute for your morning or your afternoon or the time before you go to bed being time for you to draw your mind to the presence of God. There's no substitute for learning what it is to be with our God. We lean heavily into the spiritual disciplines, the prayer, scripture, fasting, serving, etc., because we need to be well-equipped to learn how to pra practice the presence of God in every scenario of life. So most of my mornings begin by making a cup of coffee and settling into this one spot on the sofa. It bothers me if Cassie beats me up and sits in that spot. It's, it's now my spot. Typically, I'll, I'll read a psalm. I'll just try to bring my mind to God's presence and I'll typically read that same psalm three times because the caffeine hasn't quite kicked in yet. Um, spend some time reading from the Old Testament, maybe a gospel passage. Then I'll pray some of the prayers we pray all the time in microchurch. I'll pray the prayer of confession. I'll pray the Lord's Prayer. Just some things to warm up my heart in the direction of the kingdom. And then I'll just start to talk to God about some of the things that are on my heart, some of the things I'm stressed and worried about. And then at the end, I'll try to just listen and hear what God is saying. 
Sometimes he talks, and I get a very clear sense of what my day will look like, and sometimes there's nothing, and I think that's okay. Sometimes I get a very clear sense of this is what you're called to do today, and if, if I do, I'll, I'll write it down somewhere so that I can revisit it later in the day, because by 10.30, like, everything that I had just experienced has gone out the window, because we live so much of our life on autopilot. There have been so many days, especially recently, where it hasn't been about the formula of Bible and prayer and saying these things, but it has been just an invitation to be with God, to relax into God. Just the other day, I was feeling overwhelmed at several tasks, and I had a conversation upcoming that was stressful. And have you ever been in that spot where you're so stressed and you keep working and it just makes things worse? You're just trying to like build your way out of it. And I don't know, I I just was like, I I have to stop. So I stepped away from the desk. I poorly sang a chorus of worship and I rested my eyes on the couch with God. I didn't need to perform for him. I didn't need to read anything about him. Felt like I was being invited to just be with him. That is the level of intimacy we all long for. To just learn to be with God. You know, whenever you're really comfortable with someone, you can spend long amounts of time in quiet. And Cassie and I will just sit on the couch reading our own book, like, Not talking at all, but just being in one another's presence is enough. The presence of God is safe, and he is kind. His invitation is to just be with him. God's inviting you to experience the future of the world now by just learning to dwell with him. So let's learn to be with him. If there was any way I could articulate my calling as a pastoral leader, it's to simply be someone who navigates and helps you, point you in the direction of that's, that's where God is. And his invitation is to just be with him. So that's our task today. We're going to take a few moments in quiet. There will likely be a police siren go by. There will likely be someone drop a phone or something's going to happen and it's going to shatter the quiet. Nevertheless, it's still important that we as a community remember that we can encounter God in the quiet. So if you would just find a comfortable posture, maybe both feet on the ground, your phone set aside. No hype. No fanfare, no music, just us and God. And as we were praying for the service before, I was asking God, like, I, I, what would you like me to say in this moment? And this is super random, but I got the sense that someone has been practicing or attempting to practice being in God's presence. But there has been a leader in their life, and the words were explicitly, that looks kind of like Alex, so just an average white guy, that you are holding on to resentment. They said something, they did something, they hurt you, and that unforgiveness has become a 
place where you go every time the invitation is to be in the presence of God. And I think the simple encouragement to whoever that person is, is forgiveness is an invitation into God's presence. So no hype, no fanfare, no music, just us and God. Prayer is come Holy Spirit. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.